Greetings, and welcome to the 80 Level Roundtable Podcast. In each episode, host Koril Tokarev invites video game industry leaders to talk about the world of game development. No topic is off limits as long as it relates to video game development. New episodes are in the works, so remember to follow us or subscribe and share with someone you know will also enjoy the podcast. Let's start, right? Um, first of all, thank you so much for joining us and uh, doing this little podcast. And um, let's start with a little intro so you can tell a little bit about yourself and uh, about your company and how you kind of got into this um, area of prototyping and why prototyping and so on. Yeah, sounds good. And first of all, thank you for having me uh, on the podcast. It's uh, it's an honor, as always. Um, so, yeah. Um, so you say first how I got into uh yeah introduction yeah uh, so yeah basically um well i'm my name is bernard francois I, I run a company called preview labs um i started it back in 2010 so uh, a bit over 11 years ago um, and we focus specifically on um, rapid prototyping using game technology as a service for other people so it's kind of like externalizing um rapid prototyping i kind of started it um, out of passion like working in the games industry um, i noticed um, while i was working on projects between maybe six and nine months or even a bit more in duration and i really noticed uh, as a programmer and, and game designer that um, i really enjoyed the beginning because there's a lot of interesting challenges about um, like there's creative challenges in, in terms of how is this game going to work what is the actual gameplay going to be is this gameplay going to be good Maybe it has to be tweaked a bit to kind of really find the, the fun, find the right gameplay. And at the same time, there's like interesting technical challenges, like maybe an interesting technical system that needs to be developed. Like there was this, like this one game where we did like an infinite water surface um, that was supposed to be moving up and down with, and you can go onto it with a little boat. Um, and that needed to run on the Nintendo Wii, which is, has, I guess, less resources than one of the first iPhone models. Um, so that was, uh, so you have these really interesting technical challenges and creative challenges. And like you, it's, it's like, I don't know, like it's like you can have more of an impact in the beginning. Like the things you do at the beginning of a project have a bigger impact on the end result. And I thought that was a really exciting space to be in as, a, as compared to like more like implementing all the features and bug fixing and getting it really stable which is, of course, very important. Um, but yeah, that's what I liked. I was also doing game jams at the same time, and um, and the game jams really motivated me. I thought, what would I be able to do to make like every day to be like a game jam? Um, so yeah, that that's kind of how I got with the, uh, started with the idea of, of starting preview labs, how I got into prototyping specifically. Um, yeah. Oh. I have a question. So when you're prototyping is something that uh, every company in the video game industry does, right? Even on, on early or stages. To on, yeah, they, they, they kind of all do this. And prototyping happens in, in a variety of different uh, ways. And it's not entirely... Because when, when people are talking about prototyping, mostly they think about like gray boxes and, you know, 
default characters running around them or something like that. But it can also happen on paper. It can also happen on, you know, wherever, right? Sometimes people just contemplate and think about it and so on. So when you have clients coming to you, um, what is your recommendation? Like, what do you need to have, like, in your head or on paper or on somewhere in order to start actually building the prototype? Because there is, I, I think, having an idea is not really enough to do, like, a prototype, and there is, like, a lot of uh, space for it interpretation so how do you kind of narrow it down to make sure that you do exactly what the clients want yes very good question um i do agree just an idea or or a vague idea is, is, is not enough to immediately start prototyping you don't want to just rush into it like i mean you know prototyping it it's obviously a way to learn something without going all the way. Um, but And the same applies to prototyping. You don't want to go all the way and develop a prototype before maybe you can learn something on a smaller scale, on an even smaller scale. So it's kind of like you start with very simple tools, the most simple tool, just your imagination, you know, thinking about possible ideas, coming up with ideas, kind of seeing which one makes make you feel excited and, and less excited. And that, that's a very cheap tool. That just thinking and imagining. Um, and on the very opposite side, you have developing the whole game. And so prototyping is something closer to maybe thinking about it, but you kind of, yeah, you try it out. And and, and before you actual, actually program a prototype, yeah, there's other things you mentioned, such as rapid prototyping, uh, uh, sorry, such as paper prototyping and maybe gray boxing, and then maybe doing a bit more extensive prototyping work and, and then until you end up really developing the game. Um, right. I would say Absolutely. you need what you need to have other than just a, an idea. I, I think it is good to think about it and imagine the game the way you think it would be on the market, even though it's not there yet, but you can use your imagination to think about what would this game look like in its entirety, almost like what at least some kind of vision. You don't have to speculate too far, but just an idea of what it would look like and why would people play it. And that's really important because once you have that this idea of, of the game, that kind of like a model of a game virtually in, in your head, um, you can think about it and see like, why would people play this? What would be the real draw compared to other games, to, compared to competitors? You can really think about it. And, and um, basically, like, for example, thinking about the, uh, some of the unique selling points. Mm -hmm. um, what are the two or three reasons why people would play this? And then getting a better vision and then actually from there narrowing down the scope because prototyping is all about reducing the scope to something smaller, but you first have to get a, at least an imagined view of, of what the entire scope could be like. And then before you then narrow it down and identify some things that are important for prototyping. So what the, the process that you're describing, it seems like it's uh, very creative. There's a lot of unknowns. And uh, I'm wondering how do you uh, kind of work with companies to make sure that uh, and discuss deliverability, right? So what, it mean, what does it mean when the, the prototype is delivered, right? So how do they, what do the clients have in their minds and how do they say, well, this is done and this is not done? And 
we would like to go with this or we don't want to go with this? Do they do some tests of the prototypes? Do we just agree that the prototype performs certain functions? Or is there something else? Because it seems like there's a lot of room for interpretation and people, especially when they're like outsourcing this stuff, they need to understand like what they're going to get. So how do you communicate that this client? We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that all has to be an action adventure. Yes. Ooh, dear. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The way, the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out The Gaming Blender on all your favourite podcast platforms now. Yeah, so basically, as you can imagine, it's an iterative approach. So you take it step by step. It's not like um, um, we discuss uh, the game idea with a client and then we we just make all the decisions on our own and and give them a prototype and say this is it and based on that you this you know have to make a decision so it's really more like a like this iterative approach it's like a tiered approach where you start simple and then you adjust it and so it's really like a collaboration it's not like they're sitting next to our developer working on it and that's not yeah. uh, uh, productive, but um, it's an iterative approach where we start really simple. We start usually with the core gameplay mechanics or maybe some of the core gameplay mechanics, not even all of it. It, it, it depends a bit. Um, sometimes it's a specific system that makes the game unique. That's where we get back to the unique selling points. And then maybe some of the other mechanics that kind of support the gameplay so you can just try it out. Um, and then you iterate, like you take it simple in the beginning, and then you you look at it because at any step you can you could cancel the project if if you wanted to if if you feel that okay based on the the very core like what is the most important assumption and you put that in a prototype and then you see okay no this doesn't work then you don't need to continue with the project like even better is to try a few different ideas uh, kind of different concepts or different variations and do like a first quick prototype. And in order to compare them, you don't need to go too far. You can actually limit how far you go to the bare minimum and and use the same minimum for a few different ideas because with with that, you can often already get a good idea of the potential. If, if like the very bare bones uh, version of it is already fun, then you really know, yeah, you're like onto something really interesting. And, and sometimes it takes looking at in this way at the few different concepts and of course, then you, you you go further and you can go deeper, but you should be considered uh, to be able to to kind of yeah cancel the project. And of course, um, yeah, user testing is, is crucial. It's not a service we as a company specialize in. We specialize in just the prototyping, and we we help draw the lessons from from the results of user testing. But it, it's definitely important. Like just have uh, start with small small groups of users, have them play it. Um, learn about this and then maybe some of the, the findings or things you, you learned, you take it to the other, to, to, to more people and see what they think. And then, and then based on that, you can, you can also use that in your, uh, uh, in your iterative uh, process as you're iterating. 
uh, you can take it to the users. Um, maybe one important thing there is, is not to do it too early unless you have multiple concepts that you can compare. Um, but you have to also feel that you gave it your best shot, that you feel um, if you see the, the prototype and you play it for the first time, um, that you don't feel that, okay, there's these obvious problems in the gameplay because then you're just wasting your time with user testing. People are just going to call out the very obvious things. It needs to feel like, okay, this could be really a good game. And then let your users tell you maybe it's not. <laughs> you're too excited. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you can you learn something. This is actually a, a, an interesting question. So when you... So in, in games, there is this idea that... Not, not an idea. There, there is this term for vertical slice, right? So vertical slice is basically the game as it should be, but it's like a very short little piece of it, right? So you would say you create the character, you create the environment, you create the mechanics, and uh, you play it for like a minute or like a minute and a half or something. And that's basically your game. So when you're doing a prototype, is it important to have like all the elements there, like you mentioned, to have the graphics and all the stuff, or you could actually leave it with like some gray boxes and some default characters, but the gameplay should be there. I mean, coming from game jams, you probably know that in majority of cases, um, it's enough to have the like a very interesting mechanic and people really get kind of engrossed and interested even without the visuals. So for your prototyping, do you bother about like the looks or do you mostly work on mechanics and try and figure out how to make it, you know, the best? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So when it comes to vertical slices, they tend to be pretty expensive because you're pretty much doing a lot already. Like you're getting basically all the features in and and you want to kind of represent the final gameplay at the final quality level and everything, but even for a few minutes. However, that still takes a lot of um, a lot of features to be implemented, and of course, it depends a bit on the on the type of game. If it's maybe if it's a very if it's like a narrative game and a, like a story game with a lot of uh, animations and long story and everything, then maybe a vertical slice may not be all that bad because it kind of shows. I mean, because the cost of that slice is, is that still going to be low compared to the whole thing. But if we're talking about a gameplay that Heavily depends on gameplay mechanics and, for example, a complicated set of gameplay mechanics. Probably the most expensive vertical slice that I can think of would be like a MOBA or something. Like you need so many different features and um, and so many different things, um, especially if you want to make it all to the final level. So, yes, there is definitely um, definitely referring to game jams. Like if you can make something that's playable in forty eight hours, that that's basically the idea here as well. Like. Um, like I'm not saying that the graphics need to be bad. I think we do pay attention to the graphics, but specifically to be the uh, to have the graphics in a specific way, which means um, for a prototype, what is really good uh, in my opinion is is what I call I would call it functional graphics or stylized graphics. So instead of aspiring to 
obtain the final quality of the graphics, I would just go for something that just represents the gameplay and, and is, is there to communicate important cues from the gameplay to the user, but not ugly and also not super pretty. Like basically if, if the goal is to really understand whether the gameplay is good, because that's what prototypes are really the best at, uh, kind of it, it gives you the opportunity to play it and, and to feel the gameplay. Um, if you just show really beautiful graphics, yes, beautiful graphics can uh, elicit emotions and it can make you feel really good and wow, and, and you can be in awe just because of the graphics. And that's that would be bad in a prototype when the idea is to judge a concept. You don't want to... It's like it's like throwing sand in the eyes of the of the player and they, they kind of get, I mean, or maybe, I don't know, <laughs> a fairy dust or whatever, something more positive. But uh, people would get, um, yeah, they, they would take it's a good game because, because of the graphics. At the same time, the opposite, I believe, is also possible if it's something looks really horrible that you get a bad feeling from it. So that's why I'm, I'm seeing stylized. So functional in order to get, to, for the functionality of the gameplay, to communicate clearly what is going on in the game. That is important, very important to understand the gameplay and to get the feeling for, of the game. And stylized to have the right level where you can, it's almost like it's transparent, like you see right through the graphics and you see the gameplay. That's that's what uh, what I believe is really important. And it's, it's also, of course, an important tool when you're prototyping. The idea is to spend a slice of your budget um, and use that small, like a small amount of your budget compared to the full cost of development, especially if you're going to cancel or you don't know what's going to happen in prototyping and you may need more prototypes to really figure out the gameplay. So you want to keep it as cheap as possible. Uh, also with this whole iterative approach, if, if you go too far and put a lot of effort in the graphics and then you iterate, you have to change it. Then if as soon as you choose a certain level for the graphics, you want to you need to be consistent with that. And, and if you're iterating, that means always making sure you keep that level uh, there. And, and, and uh, if the graphics are more simple, this is just easier. Um, so when, when people say like, hey, but we do need fancy graphics to show it to an investor then, uh, or, or for some reason or presentation or whatever, like this is something you can do in the end if you really feel you have to. I mean, there's ways to avoid it. You can present graphics outside of the, the game. You can use a prototype to show the gameplay. You can have, uh, I don't know, a demo reel or, or, or something that presents maybe even existing artwork from the people you're working with. Um, but uh, yeah, you definitely, uh, if you do integrate any more fancy graphics, you want to focus that on in the very end. So I have a question. So you, um, if you go on your website, there is a lot of different companies there. There are not just games, right? Though there are companies who are working, there are like institutions, educational establishments, there are a bunch of different clients from different areas. And yet all of them are, you are using game tech to work with and to build prototypes. So my question is, what are the advantages of uh, game tech? And if you can specify what game tech you're using, it would be great. What are the advantages uh, of this technology? Why do you use it? And uh, how can it benefit like other industries outside of games? Yeah, so um, first of all, of course, the people we work with, um, 
The reason why they all use game technology is, of course, because of our specialty that we do prototyping with game technology. We wouldn't be uh, helping people that need a prototype built, uh, like, I don't know, for a website or or for uh, any other uh, application that doesn't use real-time rendering. Uh, but it, it's true, like we see a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of applications where different areas where it, it gets applied. So um, definitely, uh, I, I think what makes game technology, game technology is really, I think the, the way, I mean, as a programmer, uh, like it's like, okay, you have a frame-based system where you have like, uh, almost if you compare it to a theater, like you you arrange the scene behind the curtain and then the curtain goes open uh, and then it closes again and you rearrange things and it opens again. And that happens 30 or 60 or even 90 times per second. And that's that's kind of a pretty interesting way of programming that's kind of different. So that makes it uh, something you can specialize in. Um, and that also allows you to create something that's very visual and at the same time very responsive so you can react and 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 so that is makes it kind of like good for things that are i don't know maybe simulation like like in a lot of if you think about different games gta it's like a simulation of a city or any racing game you're racing and it's kind of a simulation of a car or or even a platformer game it's a simulation of somebody walking and and jumping and shooting and doing everything um and so it and Maybe in a way you could say, oh, so simulation is kind of, yeah, kind of a, somehow a reproduction of life. Um, so I do think anywhere where you're practicing something, um, that's kind of like a simulation, right? So if, if we're talking about training, so we did, for example, a forklift simulator a prototype in, in VR. So it gives you really the feeling that you're in a forklift and you can, you can practice that. And of course, that was a very... Uh, that was more visually accurate and we used graphics supplied to us from from our clients uh, to reach that level but um, and but they could also be more specific kind of like 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 kind of like prototyping like where prototyping takes a specific element or specific elements from a game um, in general game technology can be used to take specific elements from real life and turn it kind of into a simulation that you can learn something from um, it could be like um, for example, it could be a yeah a game, um, maybe where you where teenagers learn about uh, uh, alcohol use uh, and that they should be careful not to drink too much. For example, and and that could be kind of a, a game with social environment in it, and and it could be kind of it could be simple like a party game or something, but it actually takes real things from real life, um, and it kind of recreates a simulation. Um, and I know uh, as gamers, we, uh, we, we know like if, it, like when you play a game, those memories of playing a game, it's like real life memory. So it can really give a very deep impression. And I think that's, th those are among some of the reasons why I believe game technology is just, it's really awesome. It's a way to experience something because it's, it's visual and it's like interactive, like it's real time interaction. And that makes you feel like kind of you're there or you're part of something or or you have a direct influence on something and 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 that's something that allows uh, for a lot of learning um, uh, memorable experiences uh, it also allows for something really engaging like um, something I didn't mention and it's not related to game technology but gameplay itself is, is, is an experience where you learn like we 
we all know the like the graph of, of related to flow where, where um, you want to balance the amount of challenge um, with the skill of the player uh, and that way you can learn um, if it's if it's in balance if, if it's not too challenging or too boring um, and I think that actually is very powerful in a lot of uh, ways um, so if you compare that to the maybe a, I don't know like a school book or something it's which kind of seems kind of boring of course there can be challenge and, and, and learning in other ways as well but I think there's a lot of theory in games that is is really uh, interesting that can be applied in a lot of different areas um, and and it's not a coincidence that as a company offering rapid prototyping with game technology that we we get exposure to that that we work for a lot of these types of clients because yeah prototyping is really the most fun part of game development there's a lot of uh, game developers that like that prefer to do it themselves of of course we work for those where it, it, that's for some one or another reason not a possibility or, or not interesting for them uh, but yeah it, it does also uh, um, yeah, um, exposes to a lot of um, people outside of the industry that are um, really looking to apply and learn something from, from regarding how they can use this technology. Some of the interesting stuff that you've done is, at least that it was very interesting for me to learn that you were doing prototypes for ads with uh, Activision Blizzard and I think maybe some other companies. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? So basically, they're building a game uh, for like interactive banners, right? And then you try to understand how this game is going to look and what's the, how's going to, the user's going to interact with it and that stuff. Would be nice to learn more a little bit about that. Process. Yeah. So, um, and this also ties into, it's, there's, an, there's this interesting question that uh, I get asked many, many times um, during most meetings. Um, and that is, like what happens after prototyping? Do you just throw it away or what do you do with it? And in most cases, I am very clear about this. Like, yes, you throw it away. You don't just throw it away. You actually learn from it. Uh, that That's the whole thing. Prototyping is typically a learning process. Um, and in most cases, yes, you throw it away. You don't continue with the code that you made. Um, and this is especially true when you you see a big game and you kind of make it, uh, kind of a lot smaller. You're reducing the scope of a bigger idea to something much, much smaller or as small as you can, and then make a prototype. And then, and as you're prototyping, you're iterating, the source code evolves. And at the end, the, the source code is pretty much ready to be scrapped. Um, and then you start from the learnings that you learned and you build this foundation for a bigger game. And that's, that's in itself really good. Um, however, when there are some cases where it is acceptable and possible to actually take the code from a prototype and use it. Um, I think one case, which is not related to the question, but one case is um, where it's a te very technical system that you're kind of trying to almost like do a technical proof of concept, figuring out something technically complicated, like a new algorithm. And then you do build a prototype around it to test it out as kind of a test environment. And But then you can take that technical algorithm and use it. And, and in other cases where um, the difference between functionality functionality of the prototype is actually not very big uh, with the actual application. And that's where we uh, ended up doing some prototyping work with Activision Blizzard Media that uh, needed these little kind of interstitial games uh, 
Um, and uh, the idea was to have different formats that can be adapted to different brands. Um, and basically what we did is we kind of prototyped these different um, formats that can be adapted to, for those ad advertisement games. So really short games that you play in between other sessions of, of, a, of a main uh, game. Funny that you need to make another game in order to engage player to continue playing. Just... Well, no, the there the it was really for advertisement. It was um, instead of having instead of just serving ads to serve like playable uh, ads. So it's not like uh, yeah, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. yeah. So from let's talk more a little bit about your team, right? So you're one one of the things that you're doing is that you're doing rapid prototyping, right? So it means that you are building these iterations very quickly. So how big of a team do you need to have to build these things fast and to make sure that you kind of you learn, you iterate and you go forward and you always have some kind of like experiment going on? Because I think in other studios and like in, especially in smaller studios, people usually don't have this luxury. They don't have the team and they don't have the time to really think about the prototyping and so on. So in many cases, they just kind of go with whatever they think will work. And there is a lot of things that bad things that can happen after when you release the game. So how big of a team do you need to have to kind of start playing around more with prototyping? Yeah, I would actually say it can, it can be really small. Like what we do when we prototype, uh, I mean, of course, it's slightly different if if it's prototyping for other people and because there's maybe some extra communication and there's some unique differences. However, I'm not even sure if that's the case, like because if you prototype internally for yourself within a company, you still need the programmer who's going to program the prototype to understand what it's about. And you do need a process, especially if you're going to uh, do that on a recurring basis uh, and kind of systematically be prototyping you you need some some way to set it up and to kind of properly communicate and everything but um, in, in terms of what we do like typically I would say it's what only one full-time programmer uh, and sometimes two maybe three but for larger prototypes but for a lot of things um, the key in eliminating a lot of overhead is just having only one programmer like we, as a rule of thumb, we say if you have one programmer and then you scale it to two, you basically double the budget and or the costs, but you only gain maybe 50% more because as soon as you have a second programmer, that requires programmers to communicate with each other. Actually, the lowest amount of overhead you can do is if you're the person that comes up with the idea and you can program it yourself, then you don't even need to tell anybody what to do. You, and then that's the ultimate way uh, to cut out overhead, but that's not a very scalable one because then you would keep your, if you, let's say you have game designers coming up with very creative ideas in the company, you would keep them occupied long-term on programming and not be being productive as in generating a lot of ideas as in doing what they're good at. But uh, yeah, it, it, so it doesn't take a large team. Um, you can, like for us, it's like one programmer and then maybe a quarter of the time of that programmer worth of project management in terms of um, figuring out the scope, testing it, um, kind of going back and forth. It is good to have a bit of a team 
um, a, a programmer by uh, by themselves. They're, it, it, it sometimes uh, sometimes you need somebody else to kind of test and tell you like, hey, uh, this doesn't actually properly work, um, or this this yeah, I don't understand what's going on. While the programmer will know because I made it um, what is going on, and so it, you'd always need somebody. Uh, external and uh, even better of course as, as i mentioned like other potential players within your audience but but yeah you can actually do it on a pretty uh on a pretty small scale just don't make it too complicated and if if you do it internally and then um you have to be careful that um the source code is not just blindly reused because people are always very optimistic about that they yeah we can do this we can take the source code of the prototype even though we change the features five times and, and there's no structure <laughs> left. Uh, yeah, we can take this and build it out. Uh, usually the answer is no, don't do it. And I, I've seen other and other companies that did it really well where, uh, I mean, when I started actually, uh, well, I started back in 2010, but I started my career in 2007 and, and I did some internship where uh, we did some work uh, with a company in the Netherlands, uh, Zynga, which was then acquired by a real game, so in the casual game space. Um, and they had a really good process, actually, where I, that, that I saw there, where they they had even a different programming language, different people and a different programming language. Um, so they would, I, I believe, I don't, I think it was ActionScript and, and, and Flash that they would be prototyping. And then um, it would be impossible for the programmers that were developing in C++ to, to actually do anything with it. And that way they really made sure that it's not possible. Don't like. Do not use any of the the dirty uh, hacks and quick and dirty uh, quick techniques and, and tricks. Uh, all the trickery from prototyping. Don't use that in your actual development. Uh, so that is a really important thing if you do it internally. Uh, and also just just keep it simple. Keep it small. Um, and and one last tip maybe there is um, like it ties into the iterative nature, but really define your iterations in advance. We call it like a prototype design document. Make a prototype design document where you say iteration one, we're going to do these and these and these features, and that's it. And then you make sure you do all of those features. You don't like go halfway and then get excited about other ideas uh, and then maybe add more. So you want to make sure you define your experiment in advance and really well. Don't put too much in it. So there's no reason to go only halfway and already make a decision then then you need to only have half of that in your first iteration. Um, and also don't don't add any ideas. Just write them down, keep them somewhere so you can then consider them when you go to the next iteration. Um, but then even better, if you have multiple ideas, don't go to the next iteration. First to the first iteration of other ideas and compare because it could really be that the second idea that you're going to work on next is actually way better and you don't know. So that that are some tips that I, I would give, and and the the nice thing about that is is if if you're comparing multiple ideas, you can have one person on one idea, another person on another idea, and just make sure if you create those prototype design documents that you make them similar and and kind of scope reduction in, in terms of um, so they they become comparable. So in, in we kind of skipped this question, but in terms of technology. Uh... What would you recommend using if you're doing prototypes? Would you suggest doing Unity or Unreal or maybe maybe just do it on paper? You know, what is yeah. a good tool to start using? I mean, 
like we don't specialize specifically in, in prototyping on paper, but if it's a concept that um, can be translated between paper and and interactive on the well, paper, you interact with the paper and, and the, where the interaction is pretty much the same on the computer, yes, or, or other device, yes, totally go for paper prototyping if, if you can. Of course, don't try to make every game into a paper prototype. Don't make a first-person shooter into a paper prototype. I mean, yes, you can make sketches for the UI or whatever, but we're talking about interaction, like actually moving maybe through an environment or act the actual whatever the interaction is. Like, um, I can imagine some 2D physics-based games to work really well as a paper prototype, or maybe it doesn't need to be paper. Maybe it can be an actual vertical plane with, with gravity in, in real life. Um, so yes, you can totally think of, of ways of, of simulating it. Uh, just don't don't take any uh, too big steps in terms of translating uh, things that may not be possible directly on paper, because then it, you risk that any findings you make on paper are no longer transferable to the real world. Uh, but then in terms of technology, I would say, without being uh, mentioning a specific technology first, I, I would say any technology that you feel really comfortable in, that you can work in really quickly, and also that does not limit what you can do. I think when prototyping, it is important to um, to be able to make decisions based on creativity, based on what works, not based on maybe limitations in your own skill compared to the, how you can work with that technology. Um, and then that said, I would I definitely uh, I, I'm definitely a fan of Unity and also Unreal in some cases, but basically, uh, yeah, the technology that allows you to build something really fast is, is, is definitely uh, the best. And for us, we do have a lot of experience in, in Unity. So for a lot of projects, we go to Unity, uh, but there's also some projects we did in Unreal where you used uh, blueprints. Um, so it, it does also depend a bit on the person who's working on the prototype, what needs to be done in the prototype, um, and which technology makes it easiest to get there. Um, but you definitely don't want to be stuck in a, in a technology where you can only do certain types of games or where certain changes are um, too much work um, or where it gets really difficult. Like um, Usually, I actually like starting at a lower level in terms of technology, not, not having too many pre-existing systems, for example, uh, that you then need to modify. You don't want to start with a, a system at the level of your gameplay where that um, it, it really offers all the features for that gameplay, but then you can't really change it because then you need to change that system and that system that could be used to or advertised to um, create uh, yeah, a certain high-level gameplay experience. It's always very flexible, and, and but then if you need to change it in a way that's not possible, then you're kind of stuck. So sometimes just making things more simple, less advanced, and building things from scratch so you can make changes quickly. That is also really important. It's not only about how quickly can I put together something that looks impressive. It's also about how quickly can I iterate. That is really important. Mm -hmm. So sometimes if you build a little bit more from scratch in the beginning, it can really help you change, make changes really fast because you understand everything that you just built. And just don't build too much. Don't take it too far. Keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Bruno, I think that was kind of like a very good advice to anyone who is kind of trying to do a prototype 
not, not trying to build too much and trying to get uh, just one thing, one step at a time, just to start with one simple thing and start with another simple thing and kind of build it on top of them. Because I guess if you if you try to add all of those things together, it starts to kind of go out of proportion and you don't really follow what you ever actually wanted to test. You don't really know if it's going to work or not. So if anyone in our audience kind of is interested in your services and wants to kind of jump on board and say, where should they go? We will leave the link to your website um, in the description as well. Uh, and probably they can message you or some members of your team and then you can start the discussion. Yeah, definitely. They can uh, go to our website at previewlabs.com and then there's a contact form where it actually ends up directly in my mailbox. So, And then some of my colleagues also monitor it. Um, and then if you just want to feel inspired and learn a bit more about the phases of prototyping, I would definitely say maybe browse around a little bit on our blog. Um, if you're more of a visual person and you want to see videos, just go to youtube.com slash previewlabs. You see some of the, the past prototypes that we've worked on. Uh, we are also working on updating our website a little bit more. We need to add some of our past projects. We've probably seen a big gap from 2021 to like maybe 2017 where it was just too busy. Like we need to we need to update a lot of that. But we've been uh, doing our best to actually share some of, of the knowledge and the things we've been working on. Um, it can really help inspire people. So definitely go take a look and, and see. There There's some pretty interesting uh, things that we're fortunate enough to be able to work on. So it's, um, cool. I'm really excited cool. to be able to do this. Oh, thank you so much, Bernard. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was very, very interesting. So I will leave the links in the description. Go check out the blog, uh, check out the website and uh, learn more about prototyping. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Kirill. It was a pleasure. Thanks for enjoying another episode of the 80 Level Roundtable podcast. Check out upcoming episodes on the 80 Level website at 80.lv. Join our career site at 80.lv slash RFP and share our podcast with friends and on your social networks.